Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 140 of the Garden DC podcast, the podcast about mid-Atlantic gardening. We talk with Mark Wethington, director of the J.C. Ralston Arboretum, all about Daphne shrubs and their relatives. The plant profile is on Sarcococa, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with Steve Ellington, host of the Rootbound podcast, who shares the last word on Jerusalem artichokes. This episode, we're joined by, by Mark Wethington, and he's going to talk about Daphne, Edgeworthia, and relatives with us. He is the director of the J.C. Ralston Arboretum based in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So I have been salivating, I guess you could say the term, is over beautiful Daphnes and gardens all over our area. And I can't wait to pick your reins about growing them and having the best possible plants in our gardens. But before we dive into that, we like to ask on our podcast, Mark, were you born with chlorophyll in your veins and a green thumb? You know, uh, actually, I was not. I had never thought much about plants at all. Uh, you know, I'd been a Boy Scout, so I guess uh, there was maybe some identifying trees, that kind of thing. But uh, I probably could have told you an oak from a maple. And that was about it. And I went to college to be a, a an architect. Uh, that was, I was in the architecture program and discovered pretty early on that it was not for me. So I bounced around a bit, was uh, a business student for uh, 20 minutes. That's that's pretty much literal 20 minutes and discovered <laughs> that wasn't for me. And took classes all around and tried to figure out what I wanted to do. And just as on a whim, I took a plant propagation class. And by maybe the second or third class, I knew that it was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So I got really lucky and, you know, I could be doing something that makes me miserable, uh, but, but I figured it out by about my sophomore year and or not sophomore, by about my junior year of college. So I did the five-year plan. Hmm. And was that at J.C. Ralston or was that elsewhere? No, I was, I went to school at Virginia Tech. And, you know, it's interesting for me now in public horticulture, because, you know, people talk about plant blindness. And I think those of us who are, you know, that people are just unaware kind of of the plants around them. And I think those of us who are gardeners and plant lovers, we think that's a, a you know, not a literal thing. But I had been in, in Blacksburg for several springs at, at that point. And I, I started taking horticulture classes. And that first spring afterwards, 
I went to my professor and I said, what is that flowering all over the, the, the mountainsides? And it, were, it was red buds. And I had literally never seen red buds flowering on the mountains. And they, they absolutely cover the mountains there. They, they, it's, it's, so that plant blindness, you know, is a literal thing. So not being a gardener, I think, has actually helped me in some ways long term uh, uh, in public horticulture. Hmm. Yeah, I've done a lot of reading up on plant blindness. It's it's a topic that fascinates me, Mark, um, just because I think it's genetic and kind of baked into human beings that plants are the background. And if they're not something that's leaping out at us with fangs, you know, or eyeballs staring back at us, um, we're, you know, conditioned by centuries, you know, of back in the millennia by not seeing all that green background. But then, as you say, you got those beautiful red buds popping the second that switch turns on in your brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's you, you can't you can't shut it back off once it's once it's flipped. And so now I go through life thinking, what else am I blind to? Yeah, <laughs> what, what else is there that's out there that that other people see that I just do not see? And mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated when I talk to somebody who's a enthusiast about something that really I don't know anything about. I'm, I always want to pick their brains about, about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a fascinating question. It's kind of like that um, colorblindness question as well. Like, mm-hmm. if you don't see the color the same way as me, what are you seeing? Yeah. So after your degree, uh, did you go into public horticulture or did you work for a landscape company? What was your career trajectory that brought you to J.C. Ralston? So I, um, after I, I finished up my master's, I went to the Atlanta Botanic Garden and worked there for several years. I had kind of, in my mind, I'd always thought I was going to go to a wholesale nursery and grow plants. That is, That was really where I had always thought I would be. And I kind of on a whim applied to the Atlanta Botanic Garden. You know, that was back in the time when, you know, there weren't job postings online and things like that. So it was, you know, a letter with a resume sent, not knowing if there was a job at all. And uh, wound up getting that job. And, and kind of like when I, I fell into horticulture in college, I realized that public horticulture was, was really what I, I, I loved. I, I also have a sociology degree the plants i'm a plant guy i love the plants i'm a terrible designer but man i love the plants and sharing that with people getting them to to become connected with with plants whether it's in gardens or or uh, natural areas that i i think is just um it's hard to beat the that as a as a career so i've i worked at a retail nursery while i was in in college. And while there I did landscape, they had a landscaping division. I did some of that. I did interior scaping for them for a while. Uh, but I tell people, if you want to learn plants, go work in a retail garden center because people will pick your brains and, you know, you have to get them good information. Hmm. And then what brought you to JC Ralston? Well, uh, 
from that time, when I was in Atlanta, that was J.C. Ralston Arboretum uh, was was always you know one of those places people talked about, we knew about. We were we were getting plants uh, from the J.C. Ralston Arboretum there, and uh, finally got a chance to visit it and was just blown away by the plant material. But I went from Atlanta to Norfolk Botanic Garden to be their director of horticulture. Norfolk Botanic Gardens in Southeast uh, Virginia, coastal Virginia. And it's a big garden, 155 acres. Uh, I, I was there for about a decade and, and really loved it, but knew always knew that wasn't my final destination. And I started interviewing around and every interview, I wound up withdrawing my name from consideration. Nothing, nothing was really right for me. And I had always told my wife that J.C. Ralston was my, was my dream job. And eventually, the assistant director position opened up here, and I got it. And, you know, it's still my dream job. You know, I moved into the director position uh, about seven years ago. And, it, you know, it's I'm surrounded by great plants. I'm surrounded by great people. And it's interesting. My wife came and she is not a plant person uh, at all to, to steal from Tony Avent. Um, she didn't much like plants when I met her. And now she hates them. She came in Norfolk Botanic Gardens, 155 acres. And the J.C. Ralston Arboretum is 10 acres. And she, I'd already accepted the job. We had put our house on the market. We were down here looking for a house. And she said, what did you do? Why did you move from this big garden to, to a small one? I said, it's about impact. The J.C. Ralston Arboretum has so much impact outside their 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 gates. And that's that's why I do this is to have an impact on the world, have an impact on the public, have an impact on, on industry. And, and that's really always been the case. And that's been kind of a guiding principle for me here is, is it's about the impact that we have, not what we, it's not, a, it, what we do is important, but it's important in terms of what the external impact is from that. Well said. Yeah. And the reputation of J.C. Ralston is, you know, one that many envy. And it is definitely one of those places that should be on your bucket list if you have never visited. I'm speaking to our listeners out there. And just a wonderful plant collection and and a great growing area, too. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Raleigh and your own personal home garden before we dive into the to today's uh, topic of Daphne and what you grow for yourself. If you can first describe for our listeners what the growing zone and soil is like in your area. Sure. So we're zone 7B. Um, so really, uh, it's, it's there's a ton of things we can grow. The high alpines can be tricky for us. Things that really hate winter wet are really tricky because we do get, we get about 44 inches of rain a year. And that is almost, almost perfectly divided throughout the year. Each month we get about three to four inches of rain. Now, sometimes August, September, October, we get all of that rain in one or two rain events, but we do get this, this regular rainfall. So it's, it's, great for growing plants unless they really hate winter wet, but relatively mild winters, we can run into some problems with 
uh, like like this year where we have a week of 80 degrees like we had last week um, and then getting a little bit cold again and, and things are already pushing out and, and growing. But it's really, in a lot of ways, an ideal um, spot to grow plants. So my home garden... Uh, well, well, talk about soils because that is important. Um, that's the biggest problem for people who move here. We have heavy clay soils. And really what we have is heavy clay subsoils because there is no soil on any, most any property here. It has all been scraped off and we're down to um, subsoil, which is a heavy red clay. Uh, and people complain about that, but that red clay is amazing. It is so full of, of um, minerals. Uh, for you, you, got, you know, it holds phosphorus well. It's it's full of iron. It's it's great stuff, but it holds a lot of moisture when it's wet, and then becomes concrete when it's dry. So you have to amend it with organic matter to to get the most out of it. But it actually is. Uh, it's not terrible stuff to grow things in as long as you don't get it, let it get bone dry or, or have it plant things in a low spot where they'll stay wet. And there are some bands of sand in the area as well and few few spots, um, but I don't garden in any of those. So, like I said, I'm a plant guy. I... I love plants. And I moved into a new house about five years ago and for the first time ever, I did what I always tell people to do, which is, well, first I ripped out everything that was existing in the landscape, and then I amended everything deeply. And by I amended everything deeply, I brought in a landscape company. I laid out the beds and said, I want to amend this. I gave them the mix I wanted, how much organic matter. And, I, and they said, and so how deep do you want this? I said, I want to be able to plant a three-gallon plant anywhere in my, at least the sunny part of my garden with my bare hands. And let me tell you, it's a joy <laughs> to garden in soil like that. Can't always do that, but boy, it sure was nice. So I, uh, this is the first place I've ever had sun. I've always been a shade gardener and I still have a lot of shade in my woodland garden, but it's, it's been a fun experience for me at home, being able to garden with, with sun. So I, I love to push the limits. So I'm growing a lot of cycads and palms and things that I'm always told are not hardy here. I, I like to kill them and see if they're they're hardy because a lot of things will surprise us if we get them in the right um, right spot. But a little of anything that catches my eye, I, I, I like to plant. Now, in the shade, um, that's, you know, really, I do a lot of aspidistras, the cast iron plants, and a lot of hardy begonias. We're finding there's so many hardy begonias there. Uh, I love both in the shade and sun. I love species lilies, uh, species, the small flowered uh, clematis I really like. I love vines. If I have a shrub or once it gets big enough for me to put a small vine on, I put a small vine growing through it. Once it gets big enough to have a more uh, substantial vine, I've got it growing on that. I, I love being able to both either 
make the flowering season of the flowering shrub more intense by by echoing it with or contrasting it with a vine growing through it or extending the season by, you know, having something summer flowering with a, a spring flowering shrub, uh, that kind of thing. So a lot of layering uh, of, of plants. Uh, the ones that I'm really, really into right now, I'm getting excited about are all these hardy jesneriats that that we're discovering um so african violet relatives you know think syningias and gloxinias but there are so many of these in asia especially that we are finding are perfectly adaptable if you get them in the right spot for us they often grow on on you know basically rock faces where there's some water dripping down. So you got to get them on a slope and just the right spot. But if you do, boy, they're, they're amazing. Hmm. Well, that sounds like a wonderful garden to visit. And I might have to finagle an invitation out of you sometime, Mark. Oh, I love sharing my garden with people. (laughs) So on to our topic of interest for this episode, which are the Daphne and their relatives. So let's first talk uh, for our listeners about how large that family is and what it encompasses. Sure, sure. So the the Daphne family is uh, it's called the the Timoliaceae family, um, which really comes from the appearance of some of the European. Daphne to olives. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm taking. I'm got that going in the wrong direction with uh, a different a plant in the Timoliaceae um, uh, family. Um, but in in that family, uh, you know the the big ones in Timoliaceae are are Daphne, of course. You know there are quite a few different varieties from different areas that. Uh, are can be difficult to easy to grow about about maybe just under a hundred that have been named so far. Of course, we grow mostly Daphne odora, the evergreen winter flowering one. Um, in the UK, they grow Daphne bula mostly, but but we're finding success with with uh, quite a few of the species ones, which are just kind of coming into cultivation now. Then, then of course, there's Edgeworthia, and I always say that Edgeworthia is a plant that, when I started gardening, if you saw a garden that had an Edgeworthia in it, you knew that was somebody who knew their plants. That was mm-hmm. that was kind of the the key. If they had that, they knew what they were doing. And and then there's a, a, a plant called uh, Wixtremia, which is what what we call a, a bios plant uh it's botanical interest only they're they're neat because they're different and most people don't know about them but they are not necessarily terribly um showy in flower for the most part there are a few that that are so daphne can be evergreen or deciduous uh, we tend to grow more of the evergreen ones than deciduous, but right now in full flower is Daphne ginkwa, which has these incredible lavender flowers on bare stems. Uh, one of the easier ones for us to grow. And like I said, Daphne odora, which makes just the perfect evergreen mound, usually three to four feet by three to four feet. And it's just finishing flowering for us now. And it has the most 
intense fragrance of almost any plant in the in the winter garden. It is it is just amazing. Uh, there's some alpine ones that that we're having some luck with, and and some of the species I mentioned like Daphne cutiloba and Daphne um, pontica and tangutica um, that we're we're really loving. So let's turn to some Daphne tips and care. Um, And that heartbreaking story I hear from so many local gardeners in the mid-Atlantic about growing Daphne, loving it, having it go gangbusters for a couple years. And then one day they walk out and it's dead. And it's just like a mystery of how that happens. So Mark, can you talk to us a little bit about ideal growing conditions for Daphne? Sure. You know, I start though with Daphne do die. They they're very nice about it in that they they turn their toes up and die and don't don't languish very long where we're trying to save them. <laughs> Once they start going, they're gone. There's no saving them. Mm. So I always appreciate that. But if they last for five years, four or five years, they're well worth the price because because winter Daphne, beautiful evergreen incredible winter um, fragrant flowers but because they 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 do tend to um, at some point die unexpectedly but we always try to to really uh, give them the best care that we can and often we love them to death the ones we grow tend to to grow in the wild on uh, you know fairly steep slopes often often kind of rocky often in in competition with other plants. And so they really prefer a well-drained, not too rich soil. So I always recommend people plant them really close to a tree. And I like to plant them small. I'm a big believer that the smaller the plant you plant, the easier it is to to establish. Hmm. Uh, So I plant right up, um, you know, kind of between the roots of deciduous trees. That's where I tend to plant my Daphne. Or if I want it in a more open area, I put it on a spot that that really drains um, pretty well, a a nice slope, uh, something like that. And I find they they live much, much longer that that way, you know, usually eight years before they turn their toes up and and, um, die. So so it's really it's about some some tough love, some afternoon shade. At least they can tolerate quite a bit of shade, but and and they can tolerate pretty uh, much full sun positions, but uh, they, I think they do a little better with, with a bit of shade. Um, but otherwise they're pretty easy. Don't, you know, don't need to water them except for to get them established. There, many of them are poisonous. Uh, the fruit and the leaves are so, but very bitter. So I don't worry about kids or animals eating them, but the deer and the rabbits tend to leave them alone as well. Uh, another big plus in, in their favor. And, you know, if it dies, yeah, we just uh, plant another one. <laughs> so it isn't the gardener to blame in most cases. No, it's not the gardener. You know, the, the reason people are good gardeners is because they've killed enough plants that they have good compost. Mm-hmm. And so if they don't have a slope or some type of elevated place uh, in their landscape amongst tree roots, you're saying is good for drainage because that typically is dry shade. But what Mm -hmm. about adding some amendments like a poultry grid or something like that? 
Yeah, you can add some amendments to the bed. Um, never add amendments to a whole. That is, that's always a mistake. Um, and I wish nurseries would would not, you know, ask you if you want some, you know, amendment uh, with, you know, you want some fries with that when you buy a plant. You amend beds, not holes. If you amend a hole for a plant where there's a difference in in uh, the the texture of the the soils or media, you form a bathtub. It doesn't matter if what you're backfilling in is is really loose and well drained compared to the rest of it. It's it's still going to be a bathtub. So I would plant my Daphne if I if I hadn't amended my beds, I would plant my Daphne kind of high and and mound soil up to it. Uh, rather than um, adding amendments into the the hole. Now, if you can do your whole bed, that's great. And and if you are like a lot of us and you started gardening um, before you went in and amended your soils, uh, there are things you can do. Even in established beds, you can go in and, and in the fall and plant uh, tillage radishes, which will go down and break up the soil. And if you leave them in the garden, they'll, they'll, you know, add organic matter in place. You don't even have to dig them out. Just let them, um, just cut the tops off and let them, um, break down the soil right there. Uh, and so sometimes I'll do that if I've gotten a little ahead of myself and started planting before I've amended, I will, I will start, I will sow, uh, tillage radishes for a year or two. And it's, it's amazing how quickly they can, um, it, that can, can really change the texture of your soil. Hmm. So I've done that with uh, vegetable plots, but never have done that with a perennial border. So that's great advice, Mark. Yeah, they're beautiful all winter. You know, they, they have those nice, nice um, leafy heads all winter. You, you can, uh, you know, dig them up and, and use them. Uh, they're basically daikon radishes. Mm-hmm. Don't buy daikon radishes because, you know, radish seed, because that's expensive. Um, if you're, you know, scattering it around and not going to... Um, harvest it. Uh, so, but yeah, um, you can get, get them in bulk as, as tillage radishes. It, it was, when I learned that it, it was a, um, it blew my mind that <laughs> I could do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's worked so well in the vegetable plot. I definitely will do that in other beds where we have heavy clay soil. And mm-hmm. it's also a good advice that you mentioned about planting high for those of us who have heavy, wet clay soils um, to get that really good root drainage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to ask about Daphne uh, as far as what time of year is best to get it established. So spring uh, or fall planting. You know, I go with either. I'm a I'm a big believer in if you can if you can water, then then you know spring is is a good time. Um, soil's warmer, you can get uh, the plants to root out a l- little bit quicker. But for us here in Zone Seven B, um, planting something like Daphne in the winter, uh, you know, in the um, excuse me, in the fall, while the soil's still warm. Um, it's easier because you don't have to get in there and follow up and, and water it. But if I'm being honest, personally, I don't have time in spring or fall. As, as somebody who works in a public garden, 
so much happens in spring and fall. It's so busy that I plant in the middle of summer and the middle of winter, and I'll plant just about anything uh, during those times if they're if they're cold hardy, and they do pretty well. I'm gonna say ditto as a, as to that schedule, Mark. <laughs> and many of my plants that were supposed to go in the spring have ended up going in July, August, and done perfectly well as as well. Yep, exactly. So it's like, do as we say, not as we do, right, Mark? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> I, you know, I um, plants want to live. At the mm-hmm. bottom line, they they don't. You know, they can be sometimes tricky and miffy. And the thing is, we always want to grow the ones that are the trickiest to grow. Uh, but but really. You know, plants are pretty tough. Um, and, and if you do like I do and plant small, I plant small plants. I water them in. If they start looking real sad, I will I'll give them some more water. But I kind of ignore things once they're in the ground and till they uh, they really start start going. Hmm. And when you're saying plant small, you're talking about a quart sized or maybe even smaller. I we so we do a lot of plants here at the arboretum. We distribute them in pint pots or little three and a half inch square pots. Mm-hmm. And I plant trees that size. I plant shrubs. I plant perennials. I love that. You know, quartz fantastic. Uh, they're they're a little bit easier to not step on the plants because you can't see them because they're so small. You know, one gallons. But I I avoid as much as possible planting anything larger than one gallon. Now, sometimes it's hard to find a tree, um, you know, being grown that small in, in commercial settings, but, but I really prefer them to be uh, very small. Yeah, I agree, Mark. It's just super hard, especially in today's market, to find the smaller plants. Even in the annuals, there's growers are pushing them up into the larger pots quicker. And, you know, the six packs, the little plugs are getting to be hard unless you are a wholesaler in the trade to get a hold of some of those for a home gardener. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and I think I think they're doing people a disservice um, mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. Yeah, I think, you know, planting small, like you said, gets them established better on the site, gets them easier in the ground. You don't have to dig that huge hole so it's not that backbreaking work a lot of the time but acclimates them definitely better in the end mm-hmm. exactly and so for the care we talked a little bit about watering and you know water them to get established then maybe not so much if we have regular rain but you know in a drought you might give them a little water but how about fertilizing your Daphne oh well um, I don't fertilize uh, I don't fertilize my plants. I mulch with either partially, already partially decomposed leaves or uh, fresh uh, ground up leaves. I'll run over my uh, all the leaves in the fall with a lawnmower and put them out on top of there and build the soil. But, you know, our red clay, it's got a lot of, of nutrients in there. And uh, mostly people are over fertilizing plants. Uh, I, I just, after 30 years gardening for a living you know, at public gardens, I just rarely see the need for, except for in containers, if you're growing things in containers, they need that. 
Um, but other than that, I just don't see it. And I don't like pushing my plants too hard anyway, because then you get uh, growth that's, that's, you know, uh, not quite as, as tough. I think it, it affects hardiness a little bit. So I, I really recommend people just taking a step back. It's, we, we try too hard and sometimes we don't need to try quite so hard. We need to kind of let natural systems go, but I am adding organic matter every year in the form of mulch, sometimes twice a year. I don't want a mulch that lasts for a long time. I want a mulch that breaks down because that's what's building my soil. Mm -hmm. Great advice. And so for Daphne, uh, you had mentioned that they are poisonous, especially the berries. So don't try to eat those yourself, of course, and keep your pets away. But that does make them deer and rabbit resistant. Yes. Resistant. I will never say something is deer proof, Mm -hmm. Um, but but yeah, resistant. (laughs) Yeah. We won't make any promises, but in general, you know, Bambi might take one bite and then spit it out, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And for pruning, uh, it does stay a nice mound, but what if it throws out, you know, one long branch somewhere here or there? What, what is the best time of year and best method for pruning Daphne? Um, you're pretty safe pruning them, um, something like that. Anytime from after they finish flowering through really the first half of the summer, you don't want to you don't want to really prune them in the fall as they're getting ready to to set buds to open in the winter um, because you will lose those flower buds. You're not going to hurt the plant, but you know. The flowers are so amazing. You don't want to uh, miss out on those. You know, if if you get something like that, uh, call me and send me the part you cut off because maybe it'll be a, a, a larger, faster growing Daphne Odora, uh, which now that I, after I said, take your time with it, now I'm saying <laughs> send me the, the fast growing one. But yeah, they're, they're really, uh, they need so little pruning. Now I do know some people who will, you know, these people who, somehow managed to keep their Daphne alive for years and years. I have seen them where they'll lift the bottom branches. They'll, they'll prune off some of the bottom branches and almost make them like a, a you know, look almost like a topiary. <laughs> so, so yeah, my growing uh, experience uh, with them and, and, and pruning, um, I don't know that I've ever pruned a Daphne, except I will... If I notice every once in a while, instead of the entire plant going, there'll be a a branch that just starts losing its leaves and looking barer than the rest of the plant. And I will go in and prune that out. Hmm. And how about for propagation? Are they pretty easy to, to propagate from cuttings? They are. They'll root right quite readily if you've, if, you know, with, with some rooting hormone. Um, we'll do them, we, we do them here in late May, early June, which probably for, for you, you'd be looking at more, you know, early June. But uh, they are difficult to get beyond that only because they are very susceptible to overwatering at that point. And what I find is most people overwater. 
So once you get it rooted, you want to put it in a really well-draining, you know, loose pine bark mix or something like that, not in a bag potting soil that's really heavy. You want it something very light so that you're, you stand less chance of overwatering it. You're, you're better off underwatering than overwatering for sure. Hmm. And how about your favorite varieties of Daphne? Oh, my favorite varieties. It's like talking about my favorite children. So the typical Daphne Odora, winter Daphne, has pink buds that open to pale pink or white flowers, which are really pretty. And there are some great white-edged forms. But my absolute favorite winter Daphne is... Uh, one that's um, sold as Alba or Variety Alba or whatever, and it's the solid green leaf one with with white flowers. There's no pink at all in the buds and those flowers. And it's funny because I am a gaudy person. I like the most over the top. I love variegated plants. Uh, you know, really, I do. And there's some great variegated ones like Mygema and Nakafu. But that plain green leaf uh, with the white flowers in the middle of winter, it's just such an elegant plant. The There's another species that's this weird thing called Daphne Pseudomeserium. And I'm sorry, everybody, you're going to have a difficult time trying to find that plant. Um, It is not widely grown at all. And so sorry to bring it up and tell you about it. And then you're not going to be able to get it. But I have to bring it up because it is so weird. It goes completely dormant in the summer, drops every leaf in the summer. It looks dead. It's got these kind of almost succulent, you know, stems like you get on a Daphne. And then in the fall, it leafs out with these soft green leaves. Doesn't matter how cold it gets for us. Single digits, not a problem. Doesn't even discolor a leaf. And then in in January, late January into February, it flowers with these gold, gold flowers. And then as we get into spring and summer, it drops every one of its leaves again and does that every year. And it's just so weird for for a plant to do that. You don't see that a whole lot. No, and it does sound like something that you would panic about, of course, if you weren't aware of that characteristic. For sure. Uh, for sure. But it is, um, it's, it's a neat thing. I was just going to say that you've you've probably started some people on a desperate search for that now. And uh, for some of the ones that are more available in the trade, um, I think Carol Mackey is the one I see most everywhere at local garden centers. Yeah, and that's one of the, the hybrids, the Burkwoodii hybrids. And those are really great plants. Uh, Carol Mackey's beautiful um, plant. There's... Briggs Moonlight, which is jaw-droppingly beautiful. It it is one. It's a little too variegated for us down here. It does not tend tend to do well for us. Another hybrid uh, group of hybrids are the the uh, Transatlanticas, um, and some of those will flower. You know, they'll throw flowers out almost year round. But Carol Mackey is a really good one. I find it here in our heat a little trickier 
than um, Daphne Odora. Um, but then I go other places and they're growing it just just magnificently. So it that may be more an issue with me than with uh, the those plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it might be a matter of more shade uh, or at least more afternoon shade. Yeah, yeah. Now you got me thinking. I need to need to try some more of those. You know, I never <laughs> never managed to do it with um, with just just one plant. It's always you know get all mm-hmm. the selections. Definitely. And then the Odora aria marginata, which is the variegated leaf one, uh, is supposed to be the most aromatic and the most hardy of the cultivars. Do you agree with that assessment? You know, I don't know. It's certainly the most widely grown. I actually think more of that has to do with it being, um, it seems to manage in wholesale container culture better than some of the other ones. It may be, it may be somewhat hardier. I, I um, maybe it's more fragrant. The one that I'm a lot of the nurserymen around here are very excited about is one called Zuiko Nishiki, which is, it looks like the typical species, evergreen leaves, no variegation, pink buds opening to, to pale pink to white flowers. But it is, um, it is the heaviest flowering one I've ever seen. It, it's incredibly heavy. But the, the Ario marginata, sometimes with different names, but the same plant, Albo marginata, is, is often the same thing, even though they are different plants, is is the easiest one to find of the Daphne Odor, I think. And it is a great plant and you get that year round variegated interest. And somebody who's in a colder spot than me needs to, to let me know how, uh, if it is hardier than the others, if, if they've grown them, you know, side by side. Hmm. And you mentioned being hardier in containers uh, for sale, but what about growing Daphne in a container versus in the soil um, in your home landscape? Do you think that those are about the same long-lived, you know, average age of three to five years? Um, I think uh, if you grow it in a container at home, you know, soil breaks down over time. So in containers, the, the potting soil will break down and get heavier and heavier and denser. And it'll have less airspace, and what you'll get is solid space and water when it rains. And that will kill a Daphne. So if you're growing it in a container, every two or three years, you really need to repot it. Even if you're going back in the same container, you need to get rid of that soil that's in there, kind of work the roots a little bit, and then plant it back in um, a a well-draining mix again. And then don't overwater. That's that's the real key is do not ever overwater. Mm-hmm. Great. And then let's talk a little bit about Edgeworthia as we wrap up and some of that care um, and yeah. tricks. And most people know about that by the common name paper bush uh, they might recognize the little umbels like upside down umbrella or parasols hanging off it at this time of year um, it is hardy to zone seven to ten um, kind of marginal in zone six yeah it's it is perfectly hardy in zone six until zone six has a zone six winner <laughs> 
and then it's no longer hardy. Um, because I keep seeing people say, oh, yeah, we can grow this one in zone six, six B maybe. And I've never found that to, in, in the long run to be to be true. Great plant. It, it again, like, like Daphne Odora has that almost perfect shape. And that's because every time it branches, it branches in threes and it always keeps it kind of this, this perfect dome. Uh, it'll grow larger than, than winter Daphne and it's deciduous. So it's bare during the winter, but it has such beautiful form and texture during the winter you know i I think it's it's spectacular and then like you said those little umbles those kind of silvery buttons that hang on the tips of all the branches they they look almost like little almost like little closed honeycombs and then they open to reveal gold flowers which i'm told are fragrant i don't have a great sense of smell i can smell daphne odora i cannot I, don't, I never get a lot of fragrance from Edgeworthia, but other people tell me that they're amazing. It's like color blindness. Some sense I just can't, <laughs> I just can't get. Yeah, I, I get a pretty strong scent from them. I would say sweeter than Daphne. All, you know, sweeter towards the more jasmine honey end of things, okay. uh, but a lighter scent. Definitely not as strong as Daphne. Yeah, and those are. Um, Tend, they tend to be much longer lived uh, than Daphne, although I have had them fail on me all of a sudden. Although Daphne will often sucker at the base, so even when the, an older plant dies, it'll, it often doesn't kill the whole plant and it'll it'll um, shoot back up. I tend to grow Daphne, uh, I mean Edgeworthia, in a little more sun. I'm less concerned about about the garden soil that it's in as long as it isn't a wet soil as long as it's it drains and there are the taxonomists and botanists will tell you that of the ones we grow there are there are a few different species but the the what is in cultivation is all one species uh the botanists will tell you uh it's all um edgeworthia chrysantha the gardeners who've gardened for a while will tell you that that is just not the case. There are two different ones and they grow very differently. One is uh, Edgeworthia papyrifera. And Edgeworthia papyrifera has a smaller leaf, finer textured stems. The flower um, clusters are smaller and tend, even when they open, to face down more and have less gold in them. And then the Edgeworthia chrysantha types, garden types, have longer foliage, more like five to eight inches long, stouter stems, bigger flower clusters, showier and more. They're, they're a little, they, they face outwards uh, quite a bit more than than the papyrifera types. The Edgeworthia papyrifera types hate the Southeast. They do not like our heat and humidity. And you can keep them alive sometimes, but not like not like the chrysantha types. So one of the ones that everybody wants to grow is the there's a form called either Akabono or Red Dragon, or sometimes has some other names, but it's a orangey red flowering form. And it is the papyrifera type, the small leaf type. And it, I have never seen somebody have any kind of long-term 
medium term success with that in the southeast. See it in, in nurseries because it's shipped here from from the Pacific Northwest where they can grow either type just fine. But but look for the ones that have those larger leaves and there's several forms like gold rush and snow cream and, and several that are are uh, much better in that that sense. Excellent advice, Mark. Yeah, I know that that Gold Rush or Akonoba, I think is the Japanese, is one that many people are seeking and want to grow. Yeah, if you're where it's hot and humid, good luck. (laughs) Yeah, you might have to bring that in in the summertime here in the Mid-Atlantic then. Yeah, get some air conditioning. Um, (laughs) That just, it's tough. That one's good. All right. So any final thoughts on the Daphne family, Mark? Well, all I'd say is everyone I've grown, even the the ones that aren't quite as showy, I think have kind of a a charm to them. I wouldn't garden without winter Daphne. Um, I generally have five or eight in my home garden at any time. And when one dies, I go get another one or I propagate it before it dies and and keep replacing different ones. And I think whether you live in a cold area, there are forms, a very cold area, you know, there are forms that will grow there. There are species and hybrids that'll grow in zone three, zone four. If you live in the, the dry, a dry area, there are Mediterranean ones, Middle Eastern ones that will grow there. If you live in the deep south, uh, if you live in the UK, you know, anywhere you are, there are forms of, of Daphne and, and relatives that'll grow for you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mark, for sharing that information. And how can our listeners get in contact with you? Sure. They can come to uh, the J.C. Ralston Arboretum's website, which is jcra.ncsu.edu. And all of our, we love to talk to people. So we're not one of those places that hides all of our emails. We, we put them all out there so people can track us down. So people are welcome to get in touch with me or with um, any of our, our horticulture team here. We also have a great YouTube channel. Uh, I'd love, you know, people can go there. Uh, we do a weekly free program via Zoom. Um, so at three o'clock every Wednesday, and then we load those on, on the website uh, on YouTube. Um, so there's a lot of free information that we have out there because that's kind of our, our mission and our love and our passion is to share plants, to share information, to, to kind of connect people. So, so I hope people will, will take advantage of some of those. Yeah, and I can attest that those weekly talks online are fabulous, and I highly recommend listeners sign up for as many of those as, as interest them. And thank you again, Mark. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, this is uh, this is great, and um, you know, love your your podcast as well. It's it's doing exactly what we what we try and do, and what we love doing is spreading great information to people. Thank you. Sarcococca plant profile, sweet box Sarcococca species is a small evergreen shrub or ground cover that is hardy to USDA zones 6 to 8. It is native to China and is virtually maintenance-free. It thrives in shade, even dry shade, and is deer and rabbit resistant. This easy-to-grow plant can be propagated by semi-hardwood cuttings in late summer. Christmas box, 
Sarcococca confusa, has small white flowers in late winter that send out a sweet, vanilla-like fragrance that gives this plant its name. The red berries appear in fall and then turn black. They're enjoyed by birds. It can be pruned to a low hedge of about three feet wide and high. Himalayan sweetbox, Sarcococca hookeriana, variety humulus, grows to only about a foot high and spreads by underground roots to cover an area about three feet wide. The flowers are not as sweet as the Christmas box, and the berries or droops are black. Sweet box, Sarcococca ruscifolia, is very similar to Christmas box, except that the berries stay red and that the plant is somewhat larger, reaching four foot high and wide at maturity. Sarcococca, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, my mid-season daffodils are now blooming and my Dutch hyacinths are up and showing color. Over at the community garden plot, we planted arugula, peas, and carrots. Next week, I think we'll add some lettuces and radish. In the local gardening world, some upcoming events you might want to attend include Rooting DC, and this is an in-person free urban gardening forum Saturday, March 11th, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Anacostia High School in Southeast Washington, D.C. You can register for that through Eventbrite. I will be tabling there and giving a presentation. That presentation is on the first session of the day, and that's all about building great soils and fertilizing tips. Also free and open to anybody to attend is the Tacoma Hort Club's February meeting. And that talk is on perennial herbs beyond parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme with guest presenter Heather Worley. That takes place at the Tacoma Park Fire Station Community Room at 7.30 p.m. on Wednesday, March 15th. You can find out more details about that at TacomaHort.org. We have set our spring Garden Book Club selection, and you can join us to discuss this book on Thursday, April 27th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom. The link to register for that is up at our blog, washingtongardener.blogspot.com. And the book we are discussing is The Sakura Obsession, the incredible story of the plant hunter who saved Japan's cherry blossoms by, by Naoki Abe. And speaking of cherry blossoms, we attended the press conference for the Peak Bloom prediction and it is said to be March 22nd through 25th at the Tidal Basin and of course weather and other factors will impact that. Happy gardening!
In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen, Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Get low-maintenance alternative to lawns with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in homeownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. This is the last word on Jerusalem artichokes by Steve Ellington, host of Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Jerusalem artichokes are neither from Jerusalem nor are they artichokes. In fact, I more often call them sunchokes and maybe I should call them sunroot, but we're not going to get into the whole history of why they're called that today. If you want to learn that, it's quite a long story and you can listen to uh, episode 15 of my podcast, Rootbound, if you want to get into that. But I just want to talk about how awesome sunchokes are and why you should probably be growing them in your garden. Now, as I said, sunchokes are not from Jerusalem. They're actually native to North America, and I think we should all be growing more native plants in our garden, and the sunchoke, or the sunroot, is such an awesome plant to grow in your garden uh, because it's a beautiful native plant. I also mentioned that they are not artichokes. (laughs) They are actually uh, in the sunflower family. Uh, The Latin name is Helianthus tuberosus, And if you look at them, the stem looks very much like a sunflower, but instead of one big flower on the top, they have many smaller yellow flowers that kind of look daisy-ish at the top. And they're very beautiful, and pollinators love them, so that's one great benefit of just planting them. They are beautiful, and pollinators love them. Another awesome thing about the sunchokes is that they produce a ton of food. That specific epithet, Helianthus tuberosus, means they grow tubers. And underneath the plant is a massive amount of tubers. I've read and I've experienced 
that one plant can produce over 10 pounds of these edible tubers. And I've seen some statistics that the sunchoke is perhaps the largest yielding crop for kilograms per hectare out there, which is pretty amazing. And that's pretty awesome to get a lot of food. And the cool thing about them is when you're growing them, you don't harvest them until like the autumn time or even in the winter, but you can just leave them in the ground and harvest them all through the winter. As long as the ground isn't frozen cold, you can just pull them up and kind of use the garden as your root cellar for the sunchokes. And the colder it gets, they get a little tastier because the sugars kind of break down and they get a little sweeter. So after a frost, it's kind of better time to, to harvest them. So yeah, they're really great. They produce a ton of food. And then the next thing, uh, why they're awesome, is for health. And sunchokes are very interesting because they do not contain starch. Instead, they contain a different molecule that is called inulin. And inulin is quite interesting because the enzymes in our stomachs cannot digest inulin, but the bacteria in our gut can. And this is interesting for a number of reasons. One, because it's not a starch which gets broken down into sugar by stomach acids, it's safe for diabetics to eat them. In fact, sometimes sunchokes are called the diabetic's potato because you can because people with diabetes can eat them safely because they have inulin and not starch. And two, they are really great for digestion because they are a indigestible fiber. They have the benefits of any other fiber as far as like how that works in your digestive tract. And I think most interestingly is that because the bacteria in your gut can digest the inulin, it's really good for that gut flora health. It's a it's something that those little microbes down there can really like eat their fill on and get really happy. And it's really good for that gut health. And some I think people sometimes call it prebiotic. It's not probiotic because it's not like living, but it can help those bacteria in your gut. Now a word of warning, because of that, some people experience a little bit more gas, especially if you're not used to eating them. So be warned uh that uh, that, that can happen. I would t- if you haven't had sunchokes before, go slow. Cook them extra well. The more you cook them, the more the sugars break down to fructose, um, and, and you might have less of that issue. But anyway, if you've eaten it for a while and your your uh, gut bacteria are used to eating sunchokes, then that problem kind of goes away. But just word of warning, can get a little bit of stomach discomfort. Another warning, <laughs> to be fair, is that uh, when you grow them, they just grow very intensely and they can kind of take over a whole part of your garden. So try to grow them in a place where you don't mind containing them and and where you can kind of like pull out the ones if they spread beyond where you intend them to be because they'll be there for a long time. It's really hard to get all the tubers up, and you'll swear you pull up all the tubers in one year, and the next year they pop right back up. So that's another great reason to grow them is they are just prolific. They grow just amazingly, and that's why I think everybody who can, should be growing sunchokes in their garden. And this was the last word on the Jerusalem artichoke or the sunchoke by Steve Ellington, host of Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash gardendc slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine, 
to do so, go to WashingtonGardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.